You are listening to Meat and Potatoes, a 12-week teaching series from Jubilee Church. Meat and Potatoes is an expression used to convey the most important and basic part of an idea or practice. This series will explore some of the most critical elements of Christian faith. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Um, well, today uh, I want to talk to you about faith. We are, we are in this series uh, called Meat and Potatoes and uh, looking at the staples of our faith and understanding w- what faith is is huge. And, and if I was to point to, uh, if you were to ask me, hey, what is, the, what is like the key cornerstone verse or what's the verse in the Bible that really explains the most concisely, the most succinctly, uh, what the gospel is or what salvation is or what does it mean to be a Christian, I would take you to Ephesians 2.8. We'll have this here on the screen for you. It says, for by grace you were saved through faith. For by grace you were saved through faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? What, what does it mean to be saved? It, it is for by grace you were saved. This is not of your works. It wasn't your good work. It's not a, it doesn't matter how many good things that you do. It's not about being a, a good person. It's not about your good works. It's about his great work on the cross. It's about his uh, unmerited favor. It, it, his, uh, he, he did a, a unilateral, one-sided uh, act on his um, own behalf for our benefit. That is how we are saved. So it says, "For by grace you are saved through faith." So uh, if if it's grace, it's by grace that we are saved. Faith, though, is like the spark plug. It's the spark that ignites uh, this grace in our life. Before faith happens, uh, you know, um, grace is just well, it's theoretical. It's just it's just like it's just an idea. Uh, but faith is what makes it alive. Faith is what makes it stir up in our hearts. And, and that's how we become a Christian. So this begs the question, like, what is faith? Now, the difficulty, there's, there's all kinds of ideas out there on what faith is. I mean, Webster's Dictionary alone has seven, 17 different versions uh, defining what, what faith is. And uh, we're going to look at the Bible today. We're going to look in uh, Hebrews 11, uh, to take a look at what faith is. But let me tell you a little bit about what faith isn't. Faith is not a feeling of optimism. Uh, faith is not mind over matter. It is not like, you know, you, you know, you can conquer and you can do this and you can do that. It's not a hunch to be followed. It's not being intuitive. It's not wishing for the best and hoping everything works out without having any kind of real assurance that it, w- that it will work out. Faith is different than that. So let's take a look at what faith is. If you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to walk through um, uh, chapter 11. And then we'll even touch into verse 12. I'm just going to pull out a few verses. We won't go verse by verse. Uh, but verse, uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So faith begins with hope. Now hope gets celebrated as kind of like this happy word. I mean, hope is happy, right? It starts with an H and it's happy. And, but hope is wrought with sorrow. It is a word wrought with sorrow. Now, let me explain that. Because if you hope for something, that means right now you are dissatisfied with the way things are. 
So if you hope for a better marriage, it means right now your marriage isn't what you want it to be. If you hope for a a different job or a better job, it means right now the job that you have isn't what you want. If you hope uh, that your friends come to Jesus, it means right now they're not. So hope is this, it's, it's, it's this word that has within it the sense of discontentment. So follow me here. Faith begins in the discontented heart. The foundational element of faith is a sense of discontentment. Without a sense of discontentment, there is no faith. That's why all throughout the Bible, the great enemy of faith is this this desire for the status quo, this complacent spirit. And so this this kind of self-satisfaction with the way things are. So in your life, if if everything is like ho-hum and and you're finding yourself consistently moving toward ease, uh, toward comfort, toward security, uh, and life is, you know, know, this is life to you. Life is going to be, you know, I eat a little bit, you know, I, I, uh, I sleep a little bit, I, you know, I do a little work, I do some things to amuse myself, and then one day, I just kind of hope I die in my sleep. Like, I don't want anything crazy to happen, just take me to the hospital, give me a shot, and I hope that's the end of it. That's what you want life to be. You eat a little bit, you drink a little bit, you amuse yourself, you go do some sleep, and you die very, very quietly and peacefully. Discontentment is the foundational element of faith because it screams within our guts that there is something more in this life. Faith has a sense of, I, I can sense there's something. And, and I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase here. In the, the, the scriptures say in Ecclesiastes that, that God has put eternity in our hearts. Uh, Romans 8, uh, if you go back and read that, there, there's this language in there about how creation itself, and we too, that we inwardly groan. Like there's this life that we want to experience that's out outside the five senses that we, we ev- things just don't taste the way that we think they should taste they don't, we can't we, the, there's no beauty that really captivates our mind like we th- there's just there's just something out there that we sense is out there that we we're not really sure about but we know that it's there that the inside of us longs for that even though as Americans we are well fed we are comfortable we are secure even though that that is true, there's something gnawing in us that there is something more. And my prayer for all of us, my prayer for you as an individual, more, my, my highest prayer is more than that you would have the job that you want, the career that you want, the money that you want, the relationship that you want, the spouse that you want. My prayer for you is that you would live with this sense of dissatisfaction about where your life is because without this sense of dissatisfaction, uh, it is impossible to have faith. My prayer is that God would be so gracious to you as to deepen your heart, to deepen that well with inside of you that desires something more, that desires something that this phys- that in your Within your five senses, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, you can't feel it, you can't see it, you can't hear it. It can only be accessed by this sixth sense that God has given us called faith. The second part of faith we'll we'll look at in verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is why I pray that you, you're, you're not just kind of ho-hum in your life because this is huge. It is, it is, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith begins with a, discon, um, um, 
a discontented spirit, we feel that there's something more. We feel like there's something out there that's invisible that we want. Uh, There's a greater authority out there. There's something unseen, and we begin to long for it. We begin to want it, and that leads us to Jesus. And so salvation starts with there's something wrong. And if you were to hear my story, if I was to hear your story, um, it it all has this kind of like, uh, there's a theme to it, which is I I began to realize um, that I wanted something more in life, and I realized that the way I was going about it, in fact, everyone that I know, the way that they're going about it, it wasn't working. And so in kind of the, I kind of leaped, I kind of called out to God, and he met me there. That is faith, and so our faith begins with this, this sense that we want something more. We reach out to Jesus. He meets us in that moment. Grace enters our life, but we grow in this faith that we have in this mind that there's something greater and there's something better out there. Otherwise, you would confuse faith with somebody who's grumpy because you'd be like, oh, I got faith, I'm grumpy. No, it's more than just being discontent. It's more than just being, I, I wish my life was different, but it, it is, it is an, an insurance and it's a belief that something out there is greater greater and it's within God to give it to me. So faith begins with a sense of discontentment, but then rolls into assurance of a better day. In verse 10, it says that Abraham was looking for a city whose foundation and designer is builder is God. So here's Abraham. If you don't know about Abraham, when he was 75 years old, uh, God came to him and he made him a promise. Abraham was a wealthy man. He was in a, in a, in a good city and uh, you, you didn't travel alone. I mean, it just was not a safe thing to do. You, you kind of, everyone kind of ran in packs for, for no other reason than for safety and for, and, and it was community. So to go out into the unknown was, was really, well, it was dumb. And in verse 10, it says, he was looking for something greater. There was this city. There was something gnawing inside of him just like it's gnawing inside of you. And he went out in faith. There was something great. Verse 26, we didn't read this, but it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ a greater wealth than his position, his money, and his connections in Egypt. Egypt was the pinnacle of society in that era of time and he had the pin he was in the pinnacle place. He was in the courtroom of Pharaoh. He was in the corner office and some Manhattan Fortune 500 company. He had the job. Uh, he had the best job. He had all the money, but there was something gnawing inside of him too. There was a discontentment inside of him too that led to him saying, "There's got to be something more to this." And there was something more. So when he felt when he went out, so he went out into the desert again. Not a smart decision, but he went out there, leaving behind. Uh, all of the job that he had in Egypt, leaving behind the money that he had in Egypt, the comfort, the security, the safety, the connections. He left, he considered a reproach to go after Jesus, to go after the unknown. There was this sense in him that there's, I'm not just discontent, but I believe that God has something greater for me, so I'm going. And believers, um, faith is cultivated in us as we live with this sense of discontentment, and we have this assurance and belief that we're looking forward of this greater reward. I mean, uh, that God has good things for us. So we're encouraged in scripture by things like Jeremiah 29 that says that, that the plans that he has for us, that they're for our good. They're, um, that we will prosper, that we will succeed, that we will not be put to shame. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, externally everything's going to be shiny and bright. But it's trusting in the goodness and the, uh, uh, the character 
of God. And this was the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus was out from a life of discontent into something better. So he comes to his disciples and he says, you've been catching fish. And I know there's something in you that wants something more. There's something in you that wants to build something beyond just what's temporal. There's something in you that wants to build what is eternal. So you're no longer going to be catching fish. Now with me, you're going to be catching men. And because they had this, yes, there's something more. And, and, and they, had, they saw in Jesus, they believed that this Jewish carpenter, that they saw something in him that said, he is going to take me to something bigger and better. And so they left their business behind. They left their family behind and they went out. Um, Just a a verse in my life that just meant a lot to me. And if you've been here more than like three months, you've heard me quote it. But um, it's, this is it, Psalm 8110. I'm the Lord your God. This is the part I say all the time. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here it is. Open your mouth wide and fill it. So here it is. Here's the promise of God for something bigger and greater. You open your life up to me and I will fill it with with what? Well, I'll get to that part. But he says a negative thing first. He says, but my people did not listen to my voice. They would not submit to me. I, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, basically saying, like, they didn't trust me. They didn't trust that in me was something greater. And then he's crying. This is such a heart of the Father. I want you to hear this. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes, that who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. But he... And then he says, I was, I was going to feed them with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And so when God came to me, he came to me with this verse, and it just electrified my heart. It gripped my heart to where I was like, okay, I, I want to say yes to him. I, I am dissatisfied. I remember being in my college uh, apartment, 23, and being like, okay, you know, this job market and relationships and the things that I pursued, it isn't what I thought it would be. And I began to see, uh, even at, it was grace to me, begin to see the, de- uh, the deterioration in the plans that I had for myself that they weren't going to get me. And God came to me in his grace and he said this to me. So, so I was like, okay, I'm going to make my yes to him. I am going to open my life to him. And so as I went on, I took little steps and little steps. And there's all kinds of things that came into play during this path. And even thinking about, you know, a couple, a couple of the bigger ones, when... Um, uh, I, I was went in as a, a stockbroker uh, out of college, and I did that for for six years. And I had worked really hard. And, and if you're if you're any in sales or starting a business or whatever, it's really hard in the beginning. You work, and and then I but I, it, it got built up, and there's a nice little situation. But then the, the, the idea that the fork in the road was, hey, um, uh, the guy who was leading Jubilee Church, John Lanford, he came to me and said, hey, we we think you should lead this church. We think you should let go. <laughs> of this career. So you've built this up. It's, it's providing something, you know, easy and nice, but we want you to leave that. We, we think you should do this. Okay, well, that's great. So uh, what are my guarantees? Well, there are no guarantees. We'll see how this works for six months. Um, I'd preach like, I'm even less impressive then than I am now. It was preach, I'd preach like six messages at the time. I wasn't really sure. Um, 
how it was going to work out. And, but there was something in me, there's something in my wife and I that said, hey, you, you just open up to him. If, if God's, so there's this faith in us that stepped forward. And as the church has grown and grown and grown, and you know, we're 650 in, in different locations and, and things have happened, and, but it hasn't been without battles and faith, not just my faith, but the collective faith of the community here. And, but now again, we're, we're, we're at this place, you and I, as a community, where you know, things, are, you know, things work and, and there's, you know, there's, we've got people to take care of stuff. You know, the staff that Jubilee has is, is amazing. I've, there's some great young guys and not so young guys who are just zealous uh, and go after it. Um, and uh, very gifted, very capable. Uh, they do a lot of the heavy lifting. Great staff do a lot of the heavy lifting. And, I mean, I've got a, a, a good little gig here if, if you do what I do and, you know, just, you, you just do the things that you want to do and have everyone do the things that you don't want to do. And, and um, we love our, me and my wife, we love our life. We, we love our house. You know, we're ha- half a mile from here. And we just now got it to, like, be the house that, we, that we'd want it to be and, and all that kind of stuff. But now we're feeling like what God is saying to us, what he's saying to us as a community, what he's saying to my wife and I personally is like, hey, don't get satisfied with the status quo. You, you didn't get into this because you were satisfied with the status quo, and you won't persevere in this being satisfied with the status quo as a community and me personally. So he's, the call is to go and start a new, another location out in uh, the southwest county part of our uh, metro. Um, and, and we felt, my wife and I felt we're, we're to be involved in this. And, and we have lots of questions. How is this going to work? Because uh, I'm going to continue to speak here in the city and speak out in the county and do all, try to do it all. And um, how's that going to work out? Uh, we don't know. But we know by faith we need to say yes. And involve, we, I mean, we love uh, being in the city. We love the city. Um, and, you know, to, to go out there, to, to, we feel to move out there, it, a lot of uncomfortable decisions. One of those things that we've had to do, we've had to repent of actually bad attitudes toward the county. And those of us in the city know exactly what I'm talking about, so we'll just leave it at that. And by your chuckle, you understand what I'm saying. The other thing, too, is like, I mean, we just, I mean, we're, our life is up here. I mean, I, I moved in yesterday with my parents. And so it's, there's advantages, but there's a lot of disadvantages. So this is where we're at. And, and just feeling like, okay, God has something for us in that. And we, we've been praying a lot. And in fact, I want to show you, uh, I'm going to quote my wife. I quote a lot of great thinkers. And, I'm, and, and my wife is another great thinker that I want to quote. As we've been praying, this is something God spoke to her. Nostalgia is the enemy of faith. Some of us are stuck in the present and it's killing you. Some of you are stuck in the past and it's killing you too. Especially, we get, we're a young church here in this location. A lot of people coming out of college and college was this euphoric time and you know, you, you, know, you, you had to trip over people. You just the social... Um, you know, Disneyland and it just all these, you know, just everything was great and midnight and encouragement and verses and fun and, and less responsibility and, 
you know. And we get out of that and then we get into, we get a job and it, it just feels like a social wasteland. And we begin to think about, oh, you know, college and we all, be, oh, where I was before. Or some of us come from different towns and just, it be, we begin to think about what life used to be like. Man, let me just, Ecclesiastes, wisest man ever, Solomon said this. Say not, which means don't say. <laughs> Why don't you just say don't say? But it says say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. For you to say, why is, it not wi- why is it not wisdom for you to say, man, I wish it was like it was yesterday, or I hope it always stays the same. Here's why it's not wise, because it doesn't have the perspective of God. The perspective of God is that there's something greater for you. There's something better for you. There's a future that he has. There's something that he has in the future. And you holding on to the present and you holding on to the past is absolutely killing you. It is not wise to say such things. It is not wise to say such things. So, fa- so faith has its foundation and discontented heart for this life and assurance for a better day and a conviction of things not seen. Verse 8 says that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. I mean, Noah built an ark with no framework. I mean, no one ever done that before. There was no architects to consult. There was no weathermen to like double check what God was saying. There was, there was nothing that he had to go on. He just went out. He had a conviction of something not seen. And this is what makes faith, faith. What makes faith, faith is that it's not that you have this positive, man, I got a good feeling about this. That's not faith. Faith is, I have, I cannot see it. I, I, I don't even know how it's going to work out, but I am convinced that this is going to happen. That's faith. Faith is being convinced by what you don't see. Abraham, it says, um, in Romans 4, it says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What God had promised to Abraham, he came to him at 75 years old and he said, you are going to be the father of nations. His wife was just shortly behind him in age. So God makes this promise. What did he fulfill it that year? No. At 77? No. 78? No. 80? No. 85? 100 years old. The text says that we read, I don't know if you caught this in Hebrews 11, he was as good as dead. He was a bag of bones. He was dust. He was, he was as good as dead. And yet, him and his wife, he's as good as dead, 90-year-old woman, unable to conceive. They conceived. He was convinced, not of what was improbable, but what was impossible. Faith, though, isn't a post uh, to knowledge, this is something I want to throw out there as well. It's not opposed to knowledge, but it is opposed to sight. It's opposed, because it's, faith is a form of knowledge. There's this dichot- false dichotomy out there that somehow faith and what, you know, science are somehow at odds to, at each other. And who's going to, is it going to be faith or is it going to be science? Science is a way of knowing. It's a way of understanding. It's a way of obtaining knowledge. Faith is a better one. The reason why faith, faith is a way of, of, of a better way of, 
of gaining knowledge, science can only tell us what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can touch. Basically, we can only define this physical world. But the reason why faith is a higher form of knowledge is because it transcends human capabilities and it taps into what God knows and what God says is true. And I, I've read too much in, in my Bible and I've experienced too much in my life as well as through the life of knowledge to know that some way, somehow, what God puts in my heart and as I believe it and, and go with him on fight, even though everything, every, my, my eyes, my ears, and all the other things that do the other stuff, they, I didn't want to get gross, in, they, they can't tell me what faith can tell me. Because faith comes from God. It's firmly rooted in his character. So faith has its foundation in discontentment. It, it anticipates a better day. It's convinced of what it doesn't see. And finally, it, it moves. Faith is not static. It fires off. It, it doesn't terminate on itself. So faith isn't like, I, I believe certain things and I, I'm excited about certain things, but yet it doesn't lead to anything. It, faith, faith moves or it isn't faith. Now faith is interesting because faith in a, in a way is unseen, but yet the results of faith are not, they are seen. Uh, verse 2 says, by faith, the people of old, that is the people that we're talking about in Hebrews 11, they received their commendation. In the NIV, in the NIV translate that word commendation to um, really good report. By faith, they received their good report. So they had faith, this intangible sense of what God was telling them, but it led to good works. It led to action. It led to uh, something external. R.T. Kendall, who's a modern day thinker, theologian, says this, faith derives its strength from believing God without the evidence of things seen, but it produces works that are clearly visible to anyone who cares to observe. So James says things like this, you know, know, the demons believe and, and shudder. It's not enough that we would have statements of faith. We call that even statements of faith, which is probably not a good phrase. We, the demons, James says, believe that God exists and they shudder. Yet they, the problem is, is demons don't live as though God exists. There are many people, and you may be one of them, that believe God exists, but your life lives, tells a different story. Does your life reflect? Do your actions reflect that God really exists? So, so God is our provider, right? That's what it says. Man, God, he started this thing. He, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He owns the cattle. He owns what the cattle's produce. He owns everything. God says, hey, you don't, you don't ask me for money like, as if I needed anything from you. I, I have it all. He, he owns everything comes from him. He will, the Bible says this, he will supply my needs according to his riches and glory. So he makes a promise that I will take care of you. I will supply your needs according to his riches and glory. And so you're like, yeah, I believe that. I have have faith in that. Well, for you to have faith in that, it's got to move to that, which means that you need to operate as though that's actually true. So, you know, take giving, for example. You give, well, no. Why, Why not? Well, the economy's down. Well, wait a minute. You, you say 
that God is my supplier. I, he, I, he supplies me according to his riches and glory. It, it doesn't say he supplies me whether or not the economy is doing well or not. You, your sustenance, your security is not in the economy. Your, your security, your sustenance is not in your pro- ability to produce a dollar. Your security is found in God. And faith lives a life according to that statement. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes this. It is a trustworthy statement, worthy of our full acceptance. So if you want something to bank on, it's this, colon, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Yeah, he did. Well, faith is living a life amongst your non-believing friends as though that's true. That he will do that. That's what faith is. Faith isn't, yeah, he can do it. And I'm praying that he can do it. I'm hoping he does it. No, faith is living a life according. James says this, James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if anyone says to him, um, he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Meaning like that's not really faith at all. Uh, Faith isn't someone who uh, believes something but doesn't act accordingly. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, it means he needs, he's in need. And one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And I would say be, they need to be punched in the face because, I mean, it's like, hey, I see that you're freezing and you're hungry. I'm praying for you, buddy. I believe it's going to work out for you. Without giving them food, without giving them shelter. So it is with faith, with no works is death. Faith moves. Faith pushes you to do absurd things, which is really uh, Hebrews 11. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it just talks about all these um, crazy things. And I mean, one of them, uh, Noah, so he comes to Noah and says, hey, man, I want you to build a boat. God, it's like, the, you know, the ocean, the nearest ocean is 500 miles away. Why would I build a boat? Well, it's going to rain. It hasn't rained in years. Yeah, but build it. So he builds a boat. I think I'm always, it's, and then God comes and, and, and the rain comes and all those who are in the ark, which is a kind of the ark represents Christ. All those who are in Christ get saved. All those in the ark get saved. Those who had faith in the ark are saved. Those who did not have faith in the ark were not saved. And this is just such a powerful, it's an absurd thing when you don't, when you, when you don't know how the story is going to work out. It's an absurd thing. Christianity is an absurd thing. It's what it says in the Bible. It's foolishness. But faith causes us to go out into the absurd. Gideon, Samuel, Samson, Rahab, all these people. Joshua, you gotta love Joshua. I mean, this this is talking about absurd. So God comes to him and says, hey, look, I want you to go to Jericho where they have the big, heavy, thick walls that's guarded that no one can ever get in there. I want you to go. Great. God, tell me the plan. Okay, here's the plan. Get rid of your army, okay? How are we going to knock down the, you know, here, wh- wh- what are we going to do? Well, I want you to get out a clarinet and a flute, and I want you to play. I want you to get your marching band together, get the tassels, the hat, the little chin thing, get that all out, and I want you to march. But how are the walls going to come down? Oh, don't worry about that, because on the seventh time, you're going to shout really, really loud. Okay, God love him. He goes and he, t- so he comes to the people. He's like, hey, I'm the new guy. And I've been this, I'm the new, I, you know, I know what Moses did, and, and, uh, but I'm the new guy. 
So, hey, can you fight? No, good. Can you play a flute? Yeah, okay, you're in. Come on, let's go. Let's, let's go. <laughs> you're a part of this. And they go, and by faith, actually, it doesn't say through their marching. It doesn't say through their flute playing. It doesn't say through their shouting. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho came down. By faith. And then he just begins to tell this great lineage of all these people who by faith did some things that really, when you don't know how the story ends, were pretty ridiculous. Gideon, Samson, Samuel, Rahab, Abel, all these people by their faith. But chapter 11 doesn't, need, doesn't mean nearly as much if you don't read chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1, says this. It says, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, since chapter 11, since, since faith is not static because it's, it is dissatisfied with the status quo because it believes in a greater future, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us. All right, so here's what's happening. Um, he's saying, okay, there was Noah and there was Rahab and there was Joshua and uh, Isaac and Jacob and this whole great lineage of faith. And then so he's saying there's all these people. See, all these people who did all these great things. And then the writer, he turns to us and he says, now, since they did that, now it's our turn. They ran and they ran well. And now it's our turn to run. It's our 40-year block. He includes us insignificant us and with this great lineage of faith and says, since you've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, witnesses to what? Witnesses to the nature and character of God. Witnesses to the fact that you can trust God, that you can leave things behind and go after him. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, multiple, multiple witnesses who can testify to his, now it's our turn to do this. So after 40 years, he says, let us do this. Let us, now let's us go. And then he says this, He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Let me tell you what's significant about that. He says that we need to let go of sin, which I think that's obvious to most of us. But he doesn't just say you have to let go of sin. Because sin's always trying to get you, isn't it? Sin, you know, we, we've been freed from sin. We've been released from its power. We've been released from its punishment. It's in our past, but it, it wants to grab a hold of us and pull us back. We know that sin does this, but he didn't just say sin. He also says, let go of every weight. That word weight really means hindrances. Let go of anything that would hinder you from running this race. Let me make something clear for you about what Christianity is. The invitation to to be in a relationship with Christ, the invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation into morality. The the invitation of God isn't um, his plan for you, his goal for you tomorrow and the next day isn't that you would not lie that day. It isn't that you would, you know, that you would be respectful to your husband. It isn't so much uh, uh, that you wouldn't cheat and you wouldn't lust. Yes, that's, 
JV. What the real thing isn't that you would not sin. The thing that he calls you into isn't morality. The thing that he calls you into is a race. He's got a race for you to run. He's got a track for you to go on that is individually, it has individual implication, but it also has us implications. He's given us a race to run on. And so what God is after, he's not just after the fact that you would live a nice, clean life, that you would have a nice house, that you would have a nice car, that you would have a nice hobby. He wants you to be a part of this race. So you need to get rid of sin and you need to get rid of anything that would hinder you from running on this track. And be warned because it says that it clings to you so closely. So this is not easy. The application of this message is not easy. It's simple. It's clear, but it's not easy because it clings to you. Some of you have no chance, have no chance of operating in a life of faith because your job has you. You're not caught up in a lie, you're not caught up in lust, but you're caught up in your job and it's clinging to you and it's keeping you from running. Some of you are caught up in this idea of if I just get married, if I just get into this relationship, that, and it's clinging to you. And it's keeping you from running. There are so many things. There are so many things that cling to us. That keep us out of the race. You see, it's not a pretty race. You see, the track that we're running on isn't like flat surface with like, you know, spongy ground that we really can take off on. The Bible says it's rocky, it's narrow, it's probably uphill. And looks a lot like the path to Calvary. Jesus says, come with me. Lay it all down and run with me. Look at, look at the great heroes of our faith. They testify, that, they testify to this life. Now it's your turn. Now it's our turn to run. They ran and they ran well. It's our turn now to run and run well. Don't let anything get, keep you from the race. He's not just looking for you to be an upright moral person. Ephesians 2, classic apex clarity of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins. You weren't just... You, you just weren't a good person who was a little, you were dead in your sin. You were spiritually lifeless, but God, rich in his mercy, uh, touched you. He made you alive in Christ and you raised, he raised you up with him and he seated you in heavenly places. He saved you from darkness. He, we, we know about that. He saved you from your sin. He saved you from futility. He saved you from eternal death, but he just didn't save you from something. He saved you to something. Ephesians 2.10 says that, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus called to do good works, called to run in the race. So don't let anything keep you from running this race. And by faith, so how do we do it? Because I really want to do this and I make no claim to be the embodiment of what this looks like. I want to do this. How, how do we do this? Verse two, chapter 12, verse two, looking to Jesus. We got into this thing, looking to Jesus. We will continue in this thing, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. You see, here's the thing. Jesus had everything. It says he was seated at the right hand. Now he's seated at the right hand, but he was already seated at the right hand. He was already in heaven. He already had perfect bliss. He already had everything. Why, oh, why would he come to this earth? Why, oh, why would he come down and die for our sins to give us new life? It says, for the joy set before him. Somehow, Jesus was able to look through the tunnel of time and and for the joy set before him, what was the joy? He saw you and you and you and me forgiven of our sins. And for that joy, he endured. For that joy, he maintained faith. And he believed that there was something greater that the Father had before him. And as we continue to look to Jesus, we don't, when we're making decisions, we don't look to our left, we don't look to our right, we don't, get, we don't just get the spreadsheets out and figure out what's best for me and what's best for my family. But for the joy set, just as the joy was set before Jesus, just for the joy that's set before you, a greater joy than you're experiencing now, is if you can look to Jesus in everything that you do, the author and perfect of our faith. Looking to him is the key to running this race. I think 2 Corinthians 3.18 helps me understand this a little bit more. It says, And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Here's one thing I want you to uh, understand. One degree of glory to the next means that it's only possible to go forward in God. It's, you can't go backwards if you are connected to him. But it says it's by beholding the glory of the Lord. Here's the, here's the thing. I, I don't want anyone to go out and say, hey, you know what? Brian, that was so inspiring. I'm going to live so differently now. I just, that was so exciting when you were talking. And you were excited and I got excited. And, and now I'm going to do better. Um. I'll call you tomorrow when you fail. (laughs) The only way is if you can behold the glory. Behold, you keep your eyes fixed on him. And as you look to him, that transforms you to one degree of glory to the next. And it moves you along the path. And faith grows. And faith begets faith. And faith begets faith. And it goes on and on and on. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Never looking to the right, never looking to the left. It is eyes forward on him. And with great faith, we run this race. Now, what do we do? Um, so, I'm f- I turned 40 this year. I haven't, I haven't turned 40 yet, so. Um, which means I have about as much past as I do future. That's what that means. And so I've, I've gone 40 years, and, and I think about 40 years from now. I think about, I think about being 80, sipping coffee with some of you. And all of you, okay, whatever. And so <laughs> you tell me a coffee shop that seats this many people and we'll go. And um, talking about them young pup, punks. And uh, I don't have any respect. And then after we get over that topic, um, we start talking about today. We start talking about 2015. 
And as I imagine that conversation, the conversation I want to have with you, because this is an us thing as well as it's a me thing or a you thing, it's an us thing. The conversation I want to have with you is that God put out a race for us and we ran that race. We, we weren't perfect. I'm not talking about reaching some objective level of success. I'm talking about God said go left and we went left. God said go right and we went right. God said go faster, we went faster. God said slow down and we slowed down. I hope when I'm 80 that I can look back and say, Jesus, just as, just as God came to Noah and tapped him on the shoulder and said go build a boat, that when we heard the voice of God in 2015, that we said, yes, I will do that. And we got radical about confessing and repenting sin. We got radical about cutting things off, cutting off hindrances, anything that would cause us to run slower. We got rid of it because it wasn't about what the past, it wasn't about the present, but it was about what God had us in the future, that we were fully assured that the future city that he had in mind for us was greater than what we were experiencing now and much greater than we ever experienced in the past. As we're sip, sipping coffee in that humongous coffee shop, I want to tell that story. And more than that, when we're in heaven together, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought this is strange, but when you read Revelation, it, it says that, you know, when Abraham, they're going to be singing the songs of Abraham and Moses. And I'm just always like, well, wait a minute, heaven's supposed to be all about Jesus. What, what do you mean they're going to be singing songs of Abraham and Moses? But as I began to look into Hebrews 11, it began to make sense to me. And here's how I think it makes sense to me. There's going to be a day in heaven. And there, it was just going to be a continual uplifting of the greatness of, of Jesus, of course. But I just see Moses coming. I see Noah coming on the stage. And Noah's like, you know, checks to Mike. He comes up and he says, you know, I was just minding my own business. And God tapped me on the shoulder. He says, I want you to build a boat. God, I'm 500 miles away from the ocean. Yeah, I know, build a boat. He says, it rained in forever. Yeah, build a boat. So I built a boat and you will never believe it. As soon as the last nail went in, the first drop fell and it fell and it fell and it was exactly what God said. And then I just imagine the place erupting. Just just because of the, the... because, not because of Noah, but because God somehow birthed in him the faith to believe it and to go after it. Now here's what I wonder about. What will they say when it's our turn to go up? What will they say when it's your turn? What will they say when it's our turn? When God tapped us in the shoulder in 2015 and spoke little things to us some of them, quite frankly, may even seem a little bit absurd and ridiculous and unwise. But they're only unwise because of a subservient level of knowledge. But when you, when you factor in the wisdom of God, what will they say when it's our turn? Man, I want them to say, and I think about this every day, that we ran our race, that we ran and we ran well, 
and it was hard. There was as much tears as there was laughter. There was much sympathy and prayer as there was high fives. But we ran our race. We kept our eyes on Jesus. We let go of sin. We let go of hindrances. And we ran our race.